0: Welcome to the Byrne Resilience and Sustainability Podcast. Byrne is a network of scientists that study the common problem of socio-ecological resilience and our changing times from a variety of different perspectives. This week, we have scientist Dr. Evan Frazier elaborating on his recent article for the conversation on COVID-19 and the resilience in our food supply chain. In your recent article in the conversation, The Perils of Just Enough, Just in Time, you argue that this system has left us unprepared for large food supply perturbations Can you amplify what you mean by just enough, just in time?
1: This is a great question. I think that the key point that we need to be keeping in mind is that in our pursuit for efficiency in food systems, we have adopted very sophisticated supply chain techniques that mean that no real actor, food processor, retailer, distributor, is able to hold on to large inventories. It also means that the logistics of moving the food from, say, packing houses into or packing plants for meat packing or food, vegetable processing into grocery stores is managed with almost knife edge efficiency. And overall, this has meant that we have very little ability to adapt to a sudden run on supply, such as we witnessed at the beginning of the COVID 19 outbreak. Another way of looking at this is to think about resilience. And a resilient system would have distributed key nodes, by which I mean if you look at the key functions of the system, it would have more than one place and more than one location that would actually provide that function. I also think that a resilient system would have buffers and firewalls. And to a large extent, these sort of system attributes that would give resilience actually work against efficiency. And so I think there is probably a at a systems level a trade-off between efficiency and resilience. And that maybe one of the lessons of COVID-19 for the food system is an understanding that we have such an efficient system that perhaps it's not as uh, resilient as it should be.
0: How did coronavirus and human behavior threaten the resilience of the just enough just in time model of food supply?
1: In order to really get at the heart of the resilience in food system debate, I think we have to look at where the system actually is, has got bottlenecks. Uh, and the first of the bottlenecks we witnessed was uh, at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, which is a bottleneck was the amount of inventory that each grocery store held of key substances or key um, items uh, that was unresilient in the face of a spike in consumer demand. Now, to be honest, actually, on reflection, I think that our system has been pretty good. It only took us 10 or 12, 15 days uh, in order to rebuild our stocks in our grocery stores. But the, uh, the sight of the empty grocery store shelves from 10 days ago at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis in Canada really shocked many of us and made us realize that we, are, uh, we, we have a bottleneck in supply in terms of the inventory that um, we have locally. Another really interesting bottleneck has opened up, uh, has become clear in the last week or so, which is the fact that many aspects of our food system are dependent on being able to bring in migrant labor, uh, and this is particularly clear or true in our, say, our produce sector, which relies enormously on a program called the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, or. Um, which brought in about 60,000 workers. From an epidemiological perspective, this was a, a terrible idea in that these 60,000 people coming into our country represent a major disease vector uh, potential. Um, but that, from an efficiency perspective, it was, it was a way that our system has, has adapted and it has become dependent. A third interesting bottleneck has emerged just in the last couple days, the last few days of March, where we've seen um, a couple of COVID-19 outbreaks in the workers on a, in, in two meatpacking plants, and here we've revealed to us that our meatpacking industry so this is the slaughterhouses and the abattoirs has become extremely concentrated. And so here we see three very different types of um, uh, of shock. Uh, first of all, a run on consumer demand, a spike in consumer demand that we didn't have the inventory to manage. Second is concern over how we're going to get labor into our system, given that we're dependent on bringing labor in from overseas. And third is the centralization of the meatpacking industry. So from a systems perspective, we can see how these systems qualities, highly concentrated meatpacking dependent on Uh, labor from a long way away and a lack of inventories actually have exposed three different kinds of vulnerability within the food system and Probably require three very different responses to uh, to overcome
0: Do you think that human behavior like hoarding is predictable? Some sources argue it's not
1: So this is an interesting question to a large extent One of the things that the run-on consumer goods that was witnessed at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis revealed to us is how a behavior that makes sense at the household scale, in other words, I want to make sure I have enough toilet paper to last me for a couple weeks so I don't have to go to the grocery store, when you take that logical behavior at the household level but extend it across the entire uh, community, it results in everybody running out of toilet paper because there's a run-on supplies so, in a sense, what we're seeing here is what sometimes is called in economics a fallacy of composition, um, or by a geographer might refer to this as a scalar effect, um, or an emergent property, as you take the same behavior that makes sense at one level or one scale, and you move it to another scale, and it becomes extremely maladapted or irrational. And... Um, and the study of complex systems, of which ecology is a, is a participant in the broader study of, of complex systems, suggests that these sort of emergent properties or scalar effects actually crop up quite often. And, uh, and, and one of the lessons I hope that we learn from COVID-19 from a food systems perspective is that we should be looking at the food system as a whole, not just as a series of little tiny bits, and looking for where we can create resilience, see redundancy, firewalls, buffers, as a way of building overall system adaptability rather than just prioritizing the efficiency of one exchange to another.
0: What are some of the ways you see us building a general resilience in the food supply system? Put in other words, how do we learn from COVID-19? That
1: what we have to do is seek opportunities in this crisis to learn lessons to reflect on what we've done well and what we perhaps haven't done well as a way of charting a course in the future so that two years from now, when we look back at the extraordinary disruption and tragedy of, of, of this period of time, we actually feel proud that we have built a better system out of it. In practical terms, I think what this means is, first of all, we need to invest in technologies which will allow us much greater transparency and accountability across complicated global food supply chains. Now, luckily, we have tools that can enable us to do that from things like blockchain to biotracers to, uh, to sensors and the internet of things, we should be able to uh, develop a system where we can identify the food system as a system as opposed to simply having what some people call the one-up, one-down approach, where, say, a food processor knows the person they buy from and the person they buy to, but nobody's got a view of the system. That's the first thing I think we need to do to learn. Secondly, I think we probably will see an impulse towards shorter food supply chains that are more under local control. Now this is not an argument for abandoning international trade, but rather I think there will be a heavy investment or a heavy interest in things such as vertical farming, closed loop systems, um, uh, perhaps aquaponic systems that combine vegetable production with fish production, and all can be done at an extremely local level. So I think that's a a major area where I think we will probably um, uh, uh, start investing energy into. I think that uh, many of us who have lived through this crisis will, in as much as our household situations allow, probably as a Matter, of course, maintain a better stocked larder into the future so that we can feel some level of household security, that we've got some some resilience within our households. And my suspicion is that at a at a systems level, we may start seeing uh, a little bit more stockpiling of key items, both medical and health related, uh, perhaps owned by governments, perhaps owned by industry as a way of, again, creating resilience within the food supply system. Um, And finally, I think we're going to probably see a movement away from uh, our reliance and our dependence on temporary foreign workers for the ag food sector. And that probably means a bigger investment in automation that may have knock-on effects of farm consolidation. Nothing comes without trade-offs, and many of the strategies that I have just outlined will result in a highly, capital, highly techno- capital-intensive, technologically-driven food system, uh, and that will um, cause a significant upheaval that will be difficult to manage. Nevertheless, my prediction is that, that as we learn lessons from COVID-19, these are the sort of strategies that will be seriously debated in the months and probably years to come. I'd like to thank you all very much for the opportunity to make these comments and participate in this podcast. And uh, I would be delighted if your listeners wanted to look me up on social media. I can be found on Twitter at Feeding 9 Billion. Uh, I also host a website of the same name. And I am the director of the Arrow Food Institute at the University of Guelph.